Well, hello again. <laughs> I'm super excited tonight. We get to talk about attachment and self-worth. And I'm hopeful that this will help you um, for yourself, but also for your relationships with your kids, your spouses, and also the people that you serve. So we shall see how this goes. Um, one of the things I did want to mention is that I am starting a parenting group, um, really just talking about all things trauma, helping parents understand more about maybe this child in their home that comes from trauma, um, and also giving practical strategies. So yeah, if you're interested, let me know. All right, so we're going to be talking about attachment tonight. And attachment can kind of hit some of our sore spots sometimes. And so I'm giving you permission to take care of yourself. Um, if something feels a little uncomfortable, um, you are welcome to disengage. Pull out your phone and start scrolling. Maybe take some deep breaths or go, go out in the hallway if you need to. But I'm giving you permission to take care of you because we're all at different points in our, in our journey. And it won't be that scary. I see your face. It's OK. <laughs> I'll be gentle. I'll be so gentle. <laughs> I have to like, you know, so then you'll be like, that wasn't so bad. All right, so as we check in, um, I want you, and you can answer out loud or you can just think to yourself, but do you know what your attachment style is? Some people say there's like eight different kinds, but generally there's four main categories. Have you ever thought about it, taking a test? Do you know what yours is? Maybe not. I will. So there is secure attachment, there is dismissive attachment, anxious attachment, and disorganized. And if you don't know, that's okay. We'll figure it out tonight, hopefully. And then even as we are preparing for this, as I have prepared you for this big topic of attachment, even paying attention to the feelings that you have as you prepare to kind of learn about this tonight. And whatever feelings you have, it's okay. If you're fearful, take a deep breath. We're going to be gentle. We're going to do this together. <laughs> no shame tonight, right? Okay, so attachment. I was at a training once, and the speaker, I just loved, I love this definition of attachment. It's basically everything we know about relationships, but we have no idea that we know it. And the reason for that is because attachment forms before we're six years old. Attachment forms with our caregivers. And really, it's through our caregivers that we learn the rules of relationship. And so why is attachment so important? Because it lays the foundation, it lays the framework for all relationships across the lifespan. And so our parents or our caregivers are really the first model for relationships for us. And they kind of teach us how relationships go. So ideally, as an infant, in the first year of life, we learn that when I cry, my parent or my caregiver comes, right? And over and over that's repeated, and that's how healthy attachment is formed. We'll go into that a little more in just a little bit. But this is what builds trust and allows that firm foundation for relationships. Because we have to be able to trust others in order to have healthy relationships. And so as the child grows older, then they learn self-esteem and how to use their voice with a loving, responsive relationship with that parent. And when the caregiver is either not responsive or maybe um, inconsistently responsive, maybe not trustworthy sometimes, then attachment issues can come up. And so what we're going to talk about tonight is that we're briefly going to touch on how self-worth is attached to attachment, how it kind of goes together. 
And then we're also um, help you understand how attachment is formed and how you can help the children in your families to be able to form secure attachments. And then we'll also talk about the fact that you can earn secure attachment. So if you go through this, I'm giving you hope right up at the front. As you're going through this, if you look and go, oh goodness, I do not fall on the secure attachment style list, that's okay. There's hope and I'm gonna give you some strategies for that too, all right? So we're good, we can all breathe. All right, so I think it would be helpful to start with the attachment cycle. Well, that does not look like that on my computer, but here we are. So the attachment cycle, basically, what this is showing us is that, like I said, that baby cries and we come to their aid. We come and we give, um, we meet their needs, right? And so on the right side of this circle, you'll see, or this, yeah, this circle, you'll see distress, which indicates when the baby is in distress, when they're hungry, when they're wet or dirty, when they're bored <laughs> and they cry, that ignites all of these other things on the right side. So the sympathetic nervous system kicks in, which pretty much is kind of kicks in fight or flight mode, the survival mode, and kind of indicates distress. All of the anxious feelings in the body come through. Then the excitatory neurons are triggered, which um, floods the brain with um, everything that the brain needs to be able to seek help, to seek attention. So all of that happens, there's kind of a stress response going on, and then when the caregiver comes on the left side, you see comfort, the caregiver provides comfort, then the parasympathetic nervous system, which probably means nothing to most people, but what it does is it calms us down, and then it inhibits all the excitatory neurons in the brain. And so how attachment forms is over and over, this, is, this cycle happens. So the infant cries in distress, their body gets all excited and nervous and scared, and then the caregiver comes and it calms the body, and then again, the infant has a need and expresses that need and the body gets all excited and anxious and then the caregiver comes and calms it. And that's how attachment is formed. That's also how healthy brains are formed. So if we have attachment problems, like maybe if there was trauma when the baby was younger, like maybe babies that are born um, or raised in orphanages um, or some foster homes maybe that are not as nurturing, then what happens is that left side never really happens. The comfort, the learning how to calm the brain, how to calm the body, how to calm the neurons never happens. And so this child learns to pretty much live in fight or flight mode. They learn to live in distress because nobody has mentored their brain to teach their brain how to calm itself. And so these will be kids that grow up to maybe have self-regulation problems. There's other reasons for self-regulation problems, but this is one reason that a child might not be able to calm themselves or self-soothe. So that's the attachment cycle. And so if you look at this, then you can see that attachment really is the foundation for mental health and mental well-being. Okay, so I will tell you this because I'll probably forget to say it later. But as we look at attachment styles and as we look at what's required to build healthy attachment, it's important too to note that um, probably because we're human, our brains will go to like the last handful of times when we blew it as a parent. And we'll label our attachment style based on that, right? Like on our worst moments. But what I want you to look at is maybe look at your Instagram-worthy moments of parenting and maybe evaluate your attachment style that way. Does that make sense? <laughs> because truthfully, probably you're, you're going to want to look more at how do you more consistently, how do you more often respond to your child? How do you more often relate to your child? And that will give you a clue to the attachment style that, um, that you have with that child. I think too, as we're looking at attachment, it's helpful to know that there's a couple of ways that you can discern what your attachment style is. 
Um, one, we'll do this one first. We're going to look through each one of these four types, which the four types, again, are secure, dismissive, anxious, and disorganized. And we're going to look at some characteristics of each. And sometimes you can find characteristics of yourself in each of those descriptions, and that can kind of help you to kind of pinpoint which style you might have. It's not uncommon to have maybe a blend of a couple of styles. Um, and so that's totally normal. And then the second way to discern your attachment would be to pay attention to how you, um, how you respond when your child is hurt. So we're going to get to that um, in a little bit as well. So we all for, fall into one of four, or sometimes a blend of four, attachment styles. And it's important to know that these are often generational, which means that you didn't get to choose your attachment style most Well, obviously, you didn't have a choice. <laughs> it was formed pretty much by the time you were six years of, old, of age. And then this also means that your parents and your grandparents probably theirs was inherited as well. They didn't get to choose theirs either. So we can just assume that everybody is doing the best they can with the knowledge they have, right? With the upbringing that they have. So there's really no shame in your attachment style. It's just a fact. It's just a starting place um, to where you can see, okay, so maybe there's, maybe now that I know my attachment style, I know how I can maybe direct, direct my healing journey a little bit. I'll know kind of where to dive. Hmm. Yes, it can be unlearned. It can be relearned. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what you're talking about then is not only a child, but it's applicable to elderly. Yes. So if there's no intervention, then whatever attachment style that child had at six years old will stay. But there are things we can do to help to change that. Yes. And then I think it's interesting to note that the four styles of attachment revolve around needs. Okay. Is, this, is this reminiscent of the Maslow's style? Of needs? Mm -hmm. It reflects that, yes. And then, like I said, it's important to realize that on any given day, we could fall into, like if we look at our behaviors, <laughs> on any given day, we could fall into any one of these categories. So don't look at your worst moment. Look at consistency across the board, okay? All right. Oh, see, it messed up again. Okay, so some characteristics of secure attachment. One thing we know about secure attachment is that positive self-worth is usually associated with secure attachment. So positive self-worth, positive self-image, all of that. And kind of like with the attachment cycle, it's formed by a consistent, nurturing caregiver that consistently responds to the needs of the infant and eventually the, um, the child as they grow. And they not only have to meet the physical needs, but also the emotional needs as well. So they need to delight in the baby. So they're meeting the needs and they're delighting in this child. And this continues. It starts as an infant, but it continues all the way through childhood. And if that happens enough, over and over and over, then this child can grow up to have a secure attachment. 
And it's because when that happens, the baby learns that they have value and that they can trust. They can trust other people. They can trust this caregiver. It's going to meet their needs. It's going to be there when they need them. Mm -hmm. It's when, when we complete the attachment cycle. So secure attachment comes because the child knows that they can trust us. They can trust that caregiver to meet their needs. They know they're precious. So some characteristics of secure attachment style. If you're looking at yourself, you might notice that maybe one or both of your parents were attuned to your needs in childhood. So for the most part, no parent is perfect, but for the most part, they met most of your needs. They responded to your needs. If you shared a concern, they would do what they could to meet it. For the most part, um, people with secure attachment have learned to trust people. And most often, those with secure attachment don't over-respond to the thought of being rejected or dismissed um, because that's just not something that they fear very often. They just pretty much trust people. They have a pretty secure relationship um, most of the time. And most often, people with secure attachments are not preoccupied with negative thoughts of their childhood. And what we find most often, not always, but most often, Parents who have secure attachment style are able to be present as parents and able to help their children to form secure attachment styles as well. It's generational. So some characteristics, um, just kind of general characteristics of secure attachment styles is the ability to give care, so able to provide nurturing and having the skills to take care of other people's hurts and needs. So it's not just a one-way relationship or a one-sided relationship, not just taking, but also able to give, but then also able to receive care, which can be hard for a lot of people. Um, so being able to ask for help, seeking out someone to help meet needs, accepting the help when it's offered. And then uh, being autonomous, which basically means feeling comfortable in close relationships, but also feeling comfortable alone. So okay to be surrounded by friends, also okay to be solo for a while. And then we find that secure attachment style, um, usually they're able to negotiate needs. So they're able to work with others to get their needs met, to get other people's needs met, and we can meet in the middle, compromise. This is important because in abuse there is little to no negotiation allowed. And studies show that 50 to 60% of the population is fairly securely attached. Is that among all age groups? Mm -hmm. Among all age groups, just in the general population. Mm -hmm. What was your question? <coughs> well, I was responding there not too long ago, and I have some notes, especially going from the parent side, right? Uh huh. To yes. Parents and children, right? And some of the characteristics. We can't so count our bad days. <laughs> I have to be conscious about yes. that, right? Because especially the predictable, being predictable, right? That's why it's good to have this yes. expectation and boundaries and that kind of stuff. Right? Uh, the, the next one is also big because the parents really don't look to 
child to meet their needs. Yes. Which is, it's seen a lot, right? Because I think we're sort of always thinking of kids and so mm -hmm. So yeah, there's a couple of explanations to what you mean. Yes, that's great. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, the predictability is big, especially like predictability in the, in the flow of the day, but also in our responses. They need to know that my response will be the same to this very exact behavior tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. So, yeah. I would imagine good or bad response. <laughs> <laughs> it's predictable. <laughs> well, ideally, it would yeah. be a good response. That counts as predictable. <laughs> so basically, the securely attached individual has a history of the caregiver consistently meeting their needs responding warmly, meeting the physical needs, but also delighting in that child. They can just depend. They can depend on that caregiver to help them out. Okay, so one of the things that they're finding as they're doing attachment research is that positive self-worth is also connected to secure attachment. Because as you can see, with, a with secure attachment, this child can very easily learn that they are seen and valued and heard. And so how do you think negative experiences factor in? Because if a child has positive self-worth, but then... Like if they're called stupid on the playground in kindergarten. That's a great question. What they have found is that as long as one parent is securely attached, that child is going to be okay. Mm -hmm. That child will probably lean more towards the securely attached. Individual families play out differently, but overall, that, that is a protective factor. Mm -hmm. So one of the things they have found with positive self-worth is that a child who's securely attached, if they're on the playground in kindergarten and they're called <coughs> stupid, if they have the opportunity, if they are able to negotiate needs, right, and come to a caregiver and tell them what happened, and the caregiver can replace that, that lie of I'm stupid with I'm smart, then the child's self-worth can be restored. If the child maybe doesn't have a secure attachment and doesn't have the opportunity to come to a caregiver, or maybe the caregiver, you know, for whatever reason, busy or, you know, dismisses them or whatever, then they will likely believe the lie. Which makes me very thankful for all of y'all <laughs> and the roles that you play in children's lives, whether you have kids at your house, whether you're ministering to kids here at church or through other ministries, because our ability to be able to help children especially, but even adults, this works for us too, but our ability to be able to help people discern the lie that they believe and replace that with truth has a huge impact on their self-worth. And then it's true for us, too. Obviously, we don't run to our caregiver when people, um, when we start to believe a lie, when the enemy comes at us with lies. But we run to the Lord and say, Lord, this is the lie I'm believing about myself. 
what is the truth that you want to tell me in place of this lie? And oftentimes he'll bring up scripture to refute the lie, replacing it with truth. And if we don't know how to do that, or if we've never been taught to do that, then we live with the lies. We continue to believe the lies. So having a secure attachment to the Father, the Heavenly Father, also helps to protect our self-worth, our identity in Christ. You have so much power here for yourself, but also for those that you serve. So as we're looking at the next attachment style, the dismissive attachment style, characteristics of an adult who has a dismissive attachment style um, possibly had to become a little adult at a young age or learned to avoid talking about your pain or your need for help, especially to your parents. You may highly value your independence, sometimes to a fault. And you might often associate your imperfections with dismissal, which can make you afraid to share genuine feelings for fear of being rejected or unloved. If you're a parent with a dismissive attachment style, you probably give excellent physical care. You give excellent instrumental care. When that child is hurt, you've got the boot, you've got the, uh, the band-aids, you've got the ice pack, you've got a popsicle, you are ready for the physical care. But the emotional care might not feel so comfortable to you because sitting with the pain doesn't feel good. You're ready to fix it. Let's just fix it and move on, right? And so oftentimes, parents with this attachment style will hear them saying, suck it up, or it didn't hurt, get up, let's go, right? It's a very popular parenting style as well. So basically every dad <laughs> So I'm glad you said that because I was about to say, there's a time and a place for suck it up. It didn't hurt that bad. Keep moving, right? <laughs> we don't want to enable them. But yes, pretty much. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but if that's your go-to, if your go-to is, oh, no, we're not crying about that, right? And yes, there are times when we're not crying about that. This is not worth crying over. But when it's a big deal and broke their arm or something, no, we're not gonna, you're not, we can't cry about this, right? Because mom can't handle this right now, right? Well, then that might be an indication that there's a dismissive attachment style. But you have to understand that these are the parents that they will do three or four fundraisers to get the needs met. Like they will um, host a potluck. They'll do whatever they need to do to get all the needs met. They're really good at instrumental care, but they really struggle with sitting with the uncomfortable emotion, you know? Like, okay, you cried, now we're done. Dry it up, let's go. <laughs> I don't know what to do with this, right? So many of us are in this, this category. And then I thought it was interesting too, as I've been studying attachment, that there's evidence that points to the fact that there is a disproportionate amount of foster and adoptive families, as well as helping professionals, so physicians, counselors, social workers, that fall in the dismissive attachment style category. Possibly because they are so good at the instrumental care, right? I can organize things. Um, I can organize functions to come around this person and like meet all the physical needs, right? I've got the physical needs down. I have all kinds of resources. I have a community around me. We've got this. We've got physical needs. And sometimes it might be that they're trying to meet that emotional need by meeting the physical needs of, of the people they serve. 
So I just thought that was an interesting tidbit. If you find yourself maybe relating a little more to this attachment style, then you might consider increasing your trust in others. Maybe practice being genuinely open, being genuinely yourself. Maybe start with friends so that you can find that they, they accept you, they love you just for being you. And the history of this, um, this attachment style, typically the infant would cry and the parent would come and meet the needs, but maybe not, not be able to do the nurturing. Like maybe the delighting was there, but maybe just not enough. Or maybe the delighting was not there. Maybe the parent was distracted. And so it was meeting these, changing the diaper, put you back in the crib, you know? And so that's kind of the history and the attachment cycle and how we got here. Any questions on that one? That is a great question. That's a great question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so most counselors that have done att attachment research that work with attachment kind of disagree with a lot of what's in that book. <laughs> but we have a whole couple of generations of children that have been raised with that book. But it sounds a lot like this style, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But there's a, a healthy way to get back. Absolutely. There is. It's coming. I told you there's no shame. And the truth is, we only do what we know. We did the best we could with the knowledge we had at the time. That was a very popular book when my kids were little. Very popular. Like, I felt bullied for not reading that book. <laughs> it was very popular. Um, and so we did the best we could with the knowledge we had. The experts even were telling us this is the way to go. A lot of us fell into that. Yep, so there's no shame. We did the best we could. There's grace. For sure there's grace. All right, the next attachment style is the anxious attachment style. And so adults with this attachment style may have played the parent role to their own parents when they were kids. And they might inadvertently be sending mixed signals to their own children so that their children don't always know what to expect for them. So this could look like I don't know if today I'm going to get the sunshiny happy mom or if I'm going to get the really angry, grumpy, hangry mom. You know, like they just really never know from one day to the next. I see faces. <laughs> now, I told you this could be any of these, could be any of us at any given moment in a day, right? But we're looking for consistency. So consistently, are my kids constantly guessing? Like, am I getting, a good, am I getting pleasant mom today or am I getting grumpy mom today? Right? Am I getting mom who's going to be attentive to my needs today or am I getting mom that's like, take care of yourself, fend for yourself? <laughs> which one they want? Just ask them which, which attachment style they want. No, ask the child which mom they want. <laughs> yes, I think that might be helpful. That would meet their needs. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, for sure. This could also be um, your attachment style if your parents were maybe not consistently attuned to your needs. So maybe sometimes they were nurturing and loving, and other times maybe they were more insensitive or felt more intrusive. Once again, going back to just never real sure which, which mom or dad I'm going to get, which caregiver I'm going to get. And so consequently, people with this attachment style have a hard time trusting others. Um, but then also can swing the other way 
and be overly easily attached to people, almost clingy. And this style, I don't think I said this on the last one either, but this one and the, and the previous one, the dismissive, studies show there's about 20% of the general population that falls into each of these two categories. So it's still a pretty fair amount of people. And so if you kind of identify maybe more with this attachment style, then you might consider um, to stop trying to avoid pain in relationships through mind reading or assuming or predicting outcomes. And maybe it would be helpful to begin to learn to get out of your head more and maybe into your body more because anxiety keeps us in our head. And if we can work that out in our body, that can be helpful. And so if you're looking at the infant in an anxious attachment caregiver situation. This is the caregiver that inconsistently responds when the infant is upset. And so the infant cries and it's probably difficult to soothe in an effort to keep the caregiver's attention. Because if I can stay upset, I can see which mom I'm getting right now. If I can stay upset, I can see which version of dad I get. Any questions about that one? Remember, there's hope. It's coming. All right. Then the last attachment style, the fourth one, is disorganized attachment. And this one is probably the most sad one to see. As an adult, um, with a disorganized attachment, you have most likely experienced trauma in childhood, but you're unable to describe your abuse from your caregivers. So you know something happened, you know that time in, the, in your home was very confusing, very hurtful, but you can't really identify what exactly happened. Because they can't remember it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what's the effect, if they can remember it, does that, how does that impact the child if they can't remember it? That's a great question. So initially it's probably going to bring a lot of big feelings if they can remember it, because it's very confusing and very hurtful. Ultimately, ideally, if you can name it, then you can tame it. And so being able to remember it, being able to go back and target through, through trauma counseling, but being able to go back and target memories that were painful, the more you target them, the more that you reprocess them, the less of the sting that they have. It takes the power out of them. That's a great question. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people have the idea, because you adopted a child when it's a baby, hey, they were nurtured, they have all this. Yes. But there's really trauma, that even before they're born, yes. that they carry it. <laughs> and something in the brain that is reflects later on, right? And of course, they cannot articulate it. Right. Uh, so they start acting up different ways that is what's going on, right? But it's a lot of these things that Absolutely. Uh, and that's why this self-explanatory is very important, right? Because mm -hmm. <laughs> you might want to even parent them like you will your biological children, right? Which is really not going to work. Well, right. For most cases, that is. 
<laughs> but, uh, but yeah, back to your point, right? You will think, well, if they don't remember, why would they be affected, right? But I mean, even before the war, there's things going on. Yes, mm -hmm. because like we talked about in the fall, it changes the structure of your brain, trauma does. And trauma can happen in utero. Babies know, they know domestic violence. They know the stress in the mother. They know all kinds of trauma before. And even adoption, even if you take that baby home from the hospital, there's trauma. There's grief and loss there. There was, for nine months, I heard one mama's voice, and then I leave the hospital and I hear a different mama's voice. I hear all these different voices. So, yeah, there's a lot of trauma with adoption. Even, even smooth, you know, t seemingly smooth adoptions, yeah. For sure. Most often, people with disorganized styles of attachment um, have behaviors such as addiction. And possibly their parents were either frightening or struggling with addiction themselves. Remember, attachment styles are generational. Um, or maybe they were struggling with untreated mental, Ill, mental illness, mental health issues. Or maybe they were caregiving in a scary environment, a frightening environment. So either the caregiver themselves was kind of scary and very unpredictable, or the environment was scary and unpredictable. Maybe like if you think of a, of a home filled with domestic violence. And then the reason that this is so, so hard on kids is because the caregiver is the main cause of distress but this child also needs this caregiver to survive. So the caregiver is frightening, but I need you. And so they learn not to trust themselves because they have to ignore their internal red flags, their internal warning systems in order to survive. So everything about me as this child, everything about me is telling me that you are danger but I'm not gonna survive if I don't stay close to you, if I don't have you. And so I have to ignore everything about me, all of these God-given warning signs, in order to survive. And so they learn not to trust themselves. And so um, if you find yourself in this attachment style, it would be helpful for you to start to relearn how to listen to your emotional navigation system. Pay attention to the, the warning flags that the Lord gave you. Those are God-given. Start to learn how to pay attention to those and learn how to trust your body again. Learn how to trust your, your, your God-given warning signs again. And then you might want to consider, you definitely want to consider deep emotional work and even therapy to resolve the trauma. And since we asked about like pre-verbal traumas or even traumas that we don't remember, most of my trauma clients don't remember childhood traumas. And so we can still work on that. Um, it is amazing how God created our brains to heal. And you don't even have to have words for that trauma. And most of our children that we adopt, they were younger when the trauma happened. It was before they had words. So when they're, calling, when they're recalling those things, they don't have words for it. It all happened before they could talk. But you can still, you can still access that, that memory. You can still work on that through some pretty intense trauma work and they'll find, you find relief. It takes the sting out of things. So it's pretty amazing how God created our brains to heal. So what they know of the general population is about one to 2% of the general population 
is characterized as having a disorganized attachment style. And one training I attended said that about 80% of kids from hard places, so kids who are adopted, kids growing up in poverty, kids growing up in domestic violence, about 80% of those kids have disorganized attachment. So if you think about, even as we're doing this emphasis on life and all of these ministries that we're serving, only one or 2% of the general population has this disorganized attachment, but probably a much greater percentage of the people that we serve will have this, this attachment style. And so one of the reasons that I love talking about attachment styles is because it helps us to kind of shift our perspective. Instead of, this person is really giving me a hard time, it helps me to see them through the lens of attachment, like through the lens of, this poor person, like when they were a child, they didn't get their needs met. And of course they're acting the way they do. They're having a hard time. They didn't get their needs met. Their body never learned how to self-regulate because they didn't have that caregiver that was there to calm, to calm them down, to teach their brain how to calm itself down. And so it just shifts everything. It's really hard to walk in and be judgmental of someone's behavior or judgmental of the way that they're relating or the words that they're saying when I can look at, it's probably attachment. It's generational, they have no control over this. They don't know what they don't know yet. So I can see them as not giving me a hard time, but having a hard time, which changes my whole attitude towards them. This is very important. I have friends that are fostering others, and one, some of the places that have suffered the most is at church, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And they're backing up, especially because of this, right? And the people there, well, they don't know how to control the kids. Yes. The judgment that they feel, I mean, it's to the point that they cannot go back to church, right? Mm-hmm. It kind of breaks my heart, right? Because this is a place where we should be accommodating, welcoming, yes. figuring out how to, hey, maybe you need to go to a room, but I don't know, right? Yes. But So that's why I'm doing what I do, because I want to equip, I want to equip the body of Christ to be able to respond in a nurturing, loving, caring way instead of, Ooh, I don't know what to do with that. We're going to label that as autism, or we're going to label that as oppositional defiant, and we're just going to put that over there and move this way, right? I don't want, I don't want the most vulnerable in our, whether children or adults, I don't want any of them to be shamed and put off in the corner or dismissed. That's not how Jesus does. So I want us to know. I want people to know what's really going on. So yes, that's a great point. So yeah, disorganized attachment is probably the saddest one. And when you look at infants, most often, especially like infants in overseas, overseas orphanages, you'll see a lot of this. But this is sad because they have really no clear, they have no clear coping strategy. And so when they're in distress, they're quiet because they've learned it doesn't matter. I cry, nobody comes. Um, they're quiet and most often they just rock back and forth, just very silent. It's very sad to watch. I have to fix this one too. All right, so I told you 
Looking at the four strategies can help you start to identify maybe which style you have or your child has. And then the other way that you can identify which attachment style you might have is to see how you pay, how you, um, how you respond when your child um, is in pain or hurt. And I also included your elderly parent because what I am noticing and what I have seen with, um, in my own family and also with friends who are caring for elderly parents is that this pretty much falls in line with caregiving across the lifespan. And so if you are securely attached and your child or your elderly parent is in pain, you'll respond with meeting the emotional and physical needs. And so if it's a child, you've got the Band-Aid, you've got the ice pack, and you've got kisses and snuggles, and you're ready just to sing songs over this child until they are feeling good again, right? If you're a dismissive adult, um, you're going to absolutely tend to those physical needs. You've got the Band-Aid, the ice pack, probably even a few popsicles. Um, but you might say, you're fine, this isn't worth crying over, right? Because that emotional part just doesn't feel safe. It doesn't feel good. I just want to fix it, right? So I'm trying to fix it by bringing you the popsicles and the Band-Aid, and let's just move on, right? There's nothing wrong with that. It just is what it is. You're doing what you knew, right? You're doing how you were done. And then the anxious adult, this is the parent that overreacts to the child's pain. So this is the child that maybe bumps their knee and the parent sidelines them for the rest of the game and they've got the doctor on speed dial and they're just making sure that, you know, we don't have, we don't have to have surgery. <laughs> so that would be the, that's exaggeration, but that would be the anxious parent. So this can give you an indication as to what your attachment style is. Shall I ask a question? Okay. So going back to the four attachment styles, uh -huh. if there is a child who is in the disorganized attachment style, and I don't know if any studies have ever been done, what is the percentage that are able to eventually make it to be secure by the time they reach adulthood? That's a great question. I don't know what the percentage is. I know it's possible. I know there is hope. That's what I hope for, but... <laughs> I know I it's know possible. I'll look. I'll see what the percentage is, if they know. That's a great question. I know it's possible. But the longer a person stays in this disorganized attachment style, make it as longer to get to a better attachment style. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if we can rescue them out of that sooner then they could start to learn the healthy attachment sooner. Yeah, that's a great question. Any other questions so far? For an adult who's been there a long time, are you really moving to a different one, or are you just learning to better connect even though you are? Like, so if you were a dismissive type, mm -hmm. am I totally teaching myself how to be more secure, or am I just learning how to do, do things Yes, and. <laughs> yes. So they call it earned secure attachment. And yes, you are learning to do the things that securely attached adults do. But you're also, so if, if trauma or hurt happens in relationship, then it heals in relationship. So you're also in relationship with a secure adult, a securely attached adult, that, um, that helps you actually live out. So, you know, it's not just... 
It's not just, okay, I'm going to will myself to do this because I know this is how I need to do. It starts there, but ultimately you're living it out in a healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. So somebody really mentoring your brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so attachment can be really heavy. How are you doing? <laughs> I put some emotions up here. You may feel these. You may feel others. You may be feeling sad, especially if you have identified needs that might not have been met in childhood. You might feel angry or surprised, maybe even confused. All of that's okay. And if you're a parent and you're looking at this and thinking, I have messed up my kids, you might be feeling guilty. But I want you to know that you did the best you could with the knowledge that you had. And I want to remind you that attachment styles are generational. You inherited this. You didn't get to choose this. This is what came to you. But there's also hope. As I keep saying over and over, your attachment style can change. You can earn secure attachment. And so you can start where you are now, and you can earn secure attachment. I also want you to know that, yes, attachment style is pretty much, you know, it's pretty much set in stone by six years old, but nothing's in stone because the brain has plasticity. God created our brains to be able to be renewed. Our minds can be renewed. Romans 12, 2 is a reality. Um, and so even if you have teenagers or older children and you think, I've blown it and it's too late, we can't go back, you can. You can. You can help them to get into environments where they could start to earn their secure attachment. You can start to earn your secure attachment and lead the way by example and help them to, to see what a healthy relationship looks like. I'm also willing to bet that most likely you had no idea how attachment was formed before you walked in here most of you, <laughs> or how self-worth was formed, right? So once again, you did the best you could with the knowledge you had. But my heart is for you not, my heart is for you to see, for your eyes to be open, to see the reality of your situation, even though it's a hard truth, to see the reality of your situation so that you know where the goal is. The goal is earned secure. That's where I want to be. That makes me a safe person for other people, and especially as I'm working with trauma, whether it's in my house or it's in the ministry I'm serving, I need to be a safe person. And nobody has arrived, nobody has to be perfect at this. Take your dismissive attachment or your anxious attachment and still go and help people, being mindful that you're, also, you're on your journey too. Because we connect through imperfection, we don't connect through perfection. So the fact that you're just a step ahead on your journey as they are, might be super comforting, very encouraging, very inspiring for them. And once again, give yourself grace. I would encourage you to lean into the feelings that come up for you because feelings are God-given road signs. They're kind of like little flags that say, whoops, something's going on here that needs attention, right? So lean into those feelings. It can be tempting to sh shove them down or maybe just run away from them. But lean into those feelings and see what he has to share with you there. And you might find that you're believing some lies. Take those to Jesus. Let him know, I'm believing this about myself. I don't even know if this is true or not. I don't know if it's truth or lie. Help me know what the truth is. And I have found him to be faithful to give me scripture, to show me truth, to replace that lie. And realize that feelings are temporary. And so as you get to moving forward, feelings will eventually change because they are the caboose. They are not the leader. 
So it's important to identify our own attachment styles so that we can determine what issues and hurts we might still need to work through, but also so we can lead children, our children, towards healing, whatever age they are. And there have been studies that have documented significant positive shifts in families where the parents are able to process their own traumas, their own histories. So as we do our work, we get healthy, our families get healthy. Okay, I told you the good news is coming. Things can get better. All right, so here's just three very simple things that we can start to do to maybe um, work towards earned secure attachment. It's never too late, even if you're a teen or an adult, it's never too late to start on this. Um, but it does require that shift in perspective. And if you have a child, it's going to require therapeutic parenting, um, especially a child from a hard place. Regular parenting, like you said, isn't gonna work here. So you'll wanna have some therapeutic parenting. All right, so the practical steps would be self-reflection. You wanna reflect on how you were cared for as a child. What needs were met? What needs did you have that were not met? And then identify the thoughts and the beliefs and the behaviors that you bring to relationships. And it can be helpful to pay attention to what are your triggers as a parent? What are the words that are said from that child or the behaviors that happen out from that child that trigger you? that push your buttons and explore why. Why is this a button for me? Where in my story does this feel really familiar? So I would encourage you to consider journaling or maybe even talking this out with a friend or a family member. And then the next step would be to be brave and to get help if you need it. This could be through a friend, a pastor, a counselor. We can't take our kids where we haven't been. So do what you need to do to heal your attachment issues. And it's critical for you to be able to explore your own history and to seek to address and to resolve any issues of grief and loss, maybe previous abuse or neglect, maybe even um, illness, severe illness, can be traumatic. So you want to make sure that you address those issues so that you can be that secure base that your kids can count on. And then if you have a child from a hard place, you want to reflect on their history. And is it possible that their behaviors or their problems with emotional regulation or maybe even their learning disabilities could be related to trauma? So then that would mean that they truly are having a hard time versus giving you a hard time. It's shifting in the perspective. So those are things that we can start to do to help to earn that secure attachment. And then, it's been two. And then some practical parenting strategies. So if you have kids at home, Teenagers too, I'll show you how to modify these, but some practical parenting strategies that you can do is meet their needs. I firmly believe that all behavior is communication of needs. And so if there's a big behavior, ask them, what do you need? What does your body need right now? And try to do whatever you can to meet that need. 
And then the next one I feel like I have to explain. <laughs> Try to say yes whenever you can. I know that feels countercultural. But for a lot of kids, especially if they have attachment issues, they probably have behavior issues that go with that. They're probably used to be told no, being told no. They're probably used to discipline. They're used to the scowling face, right? So we want to say yes as much as possible. Plus that increases our connection with them. So within reason, with boundaries. But you know, when I was first learning all of this, my kids were much younger, <laughs> much younger. They were ele little elementary kids. And when I just paid attention to how much I said no during the day to one, one child in particular, who happened to be my strong-willed child, who happened to have a history of trauma, who happened to have all these things, right? When I paid attention to how many times I told her no, I just grieved. I thought, my goodness, when was the last time I told this child yes to anything that she requests? And she could have asked, can we go outside and swing right now? No. Well, why not? And I, I don't know. Just no. <laughs> so as much as we can, let's look for a yes. Even if it's, can I have a cookie? I'm going to find a way to say yes. Maybe it's about, it's almost dinner time. My yes might be, yes, you can have a cookie. We'll put it right here on the counter, and you can have it right after dinner. So I'm looking for the yes, whereas normally my reflex would be, no, it's dinner time. Do you see the difference? Um, yes, we can go play outside. As soon as the rain stops, we'll put on our rain boots and we'll go play outside. And then sometimes just training my brain to say yes, because it had gotten into the negative pattern of no, 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 no. Everything this child asked was a no. So we can learn new, new habits too, new behaviors. So try to say yes as much as possible. We can do this with teens too. Can I use the car? No. Well, how about yes? <laughs> Right? Yes after or yes when if we have to put stipulations on it. But how can we say yes? How can we make it work? And then I would encourage you to make eye contact because eye contact communicates value. It communicates preciousness. And we want to make sure that when we, just like when we talked about in the fall, when we make eye contact, we want to make sure that our face is soft and it's communicating preciousness. Even if I'm having to discipline this child, I'm making eye contact that says, I love you. This behavior is unacceptable, but you are loved unconditionally. I love you. I'm not going to let go. I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give up on you. I don't know what this phase is, but I'm sticking with you. We're in this together. We're going to get through this. So make eye contact as much as possible. And if you notice, like I did, that when you're making eye contact, it's look at me. I need you to look at me right here, right? The angry <laughs> face. <laughs> if you notice that that's you, you can retrain your brain in theirs. And so it might just be, hey, sweetie, look over here. I just love you. I'm just so proud of you, right? Catch them being good. Or just tell them you love them just because. And start to train your brain to just, hey, look at me, right? We all relate to that, don't we? We do that a lot. Yeah. I definitely don't have, you know, any problem looking very meanly <laughs> when my child is doing something they shouldn't be doing. Most definitely. <laughs> There's a time and a place. They need mean face, too. They need to know dad means business. We want to make sure that they also see preciousness. I'm communicating preciousness. All right, and then healthy touch. Children thrive with affectionate touch. Some children prefer us to ask before we offer touch. I have one that loves to snuggle, loves all kinds of touch, and then I have one that's like, mm -mm, only on my terms and only on the days that I choose. So I ask. I really want to hug you right now. Can I hug you? <laughs> is that more of a personality thing? It is. It, it can be personality, it can be attachment, it can be all kinds of things. 
yeah, personal space, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Like one of my daughters, it's very sensitive. Sensory, I guess, overloaded with sensories. Easily. That's why sometimes anxiety is so hard for her. And when she was a little kid, she didn't know that. She used to cry a lot. Uh -huh. <laughs> and it was probably because the clothes were something was going on. Yes. Like that, right? Yes, that's right. <laughs> you learn. Some battles are worth fighting and some are not. And then you realize they're just wired different. They're highly sensitive to everything. To the, to the touch, to the sounds, to the light, to everything. Yeah. Shelly, your eye contact and making sure you have the right facial expressions is one thing we've learned over the years is that when the child is dysregulated, at least ours, is constantly trying to evaluate Mm -hmm. what your feelings are by looking at your face. Mm -hmm. Like it is, even if it's a neutral face, it is a constant evaluation. What are you, the parent, yes. thinking about me while I'm all dysregulated? And that, that eye contact, that facial expression, that is such a important thing. Yes. Mm -hmm. For that very reason. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you get lucky and they tell you, and then sometimes you get unlucky and they don't tell you until they're 20 years old that they thought you were always mad at them. Uh huh. <laughs> I, I would love to have explained it a lot. <laughs> Wish we'd known that sooner, right? <laughs> I smiled while I yelled. <laughs> I love that. That's a great point, which is also why we also say, I'm sticking with you. I'm not letting go. I'm not, you know, we're going we're gonna to see this to the end together. I'm not leaving you. I'm with you. I don't know what this is. <laughs> we're going to figure this out together, but I'm with you. I'm not going to leave. So, yeah. All right. And then mirroring is big. So parents and infants often naturally mirror so like when that infant is blowing raspberries, we're blowing raspberries, right? When they get surprised and excited, we get surprised and excited. If they're making an O with their lips, we do the same. Um, we do this with little kids too. So like, I don't know if you've ever like tried to match pitch or match tones with your child. You know, like we all just kind of hold the C or whatever and see who can, who can get there. That's fun. You can also mirror with older kids and with teenagers. That looks like matching behaviors, really. So like if they choose the red cup, maybe you choose the red cup too. Um, if they, you know, if given the choice of all kinds of, of options on a free day, they choose to go this direction and they want to play this video game, well then maybe you join them in that video game. So matching their behaviors, just really helping to um, increase attachment, increase connection. That's a great question. I haven't read research on that. I have seen, what I have heard is that often you're the leader <laughs> and they follow the mirroring. So like if you're wanting, I guess I've seen it more in the context of if you're wanting them to, you know they're cold but they haven't put on their, their sweater, you would kind of model that for them. Ooh, it's cold, don't you feel cold? Let's put on the sweater. 
and they'll kind of follow suit. I've seen it more in reverse with elderly. And then another practical parenting strategy for this would be to follow their lead. And so I call this you and me time or even special play time. So this could be, if you have younger kids, this could be a time where we set the clock for 20 minutes and they get to play, they get to lead the play with you. You, you are, your phone is away, you're all in for them for 20 minutes and we play whatever they wanna play. They wanna play Legos, we sit there and we play Legos, but you're following their lead. So instead of, hey, let's build a building, it's, what do you wanna build today? And instead of, oh no, we can't use the green block for that, it's, oh, okay, so we're gonna build a green tower today, you know? So you're just following their lead. Let them lead the play. And then when that time is up, you just say, okay, our special play time is over. Now you can go play by yourself, or now we'll go back to playing with brother. Does that make sense? It kind of puts them in control for a little bit, which is very healing for them, very connecting. You can do the same for a teenager. Um, hey, here's the keys. I want you to drive me. Let's go to Sonic. Or let's, you pick. Where do you want to go? I want a treat. I want to buy you a treat. Where are we going? And they get to pick. So we get to kind of follow their lead. So practical parenting strategies. Okay, so the message of secure attachment is I feel protected. I feel precious. I feel heard. I know that my physical and emotional needs are taken care of, and I can count on you, caregiver, mom and dad, to take care of my needs. And so... As I was creating that slide several months ago, it dawned on me that that is perfect attachment with the Father. In our relationship with him, I am protected. I am precious. I am heard. He offers healing and freedom, both physically and emotionally, and I can count on him to take care of my needs. And there's scripture to go along with that. Ultimately, we want to be secure attachments so that we can reflect the Father to our kids. We fall short of that. We live in a broken and fallen world. Things happened when we were little that it's just the way it is. But ultimately, I have the conversation with my kids, hey, mom's gonna let you down. Mom is not perfect. The only person that's never gonna let you down is our heavenly father. And so ultimately, all of this is to point them to him. I don't want them depending on me. I want them depending on him. Because I'm depending on him, I wanna model that for them. And so everything we need in attachment, we can find in him. All right, so if you're looking for resources to help with, to help with attachment and self-worth, um, I would recommend a, the Bible study Anchored by Cindy Lee. She's a licensed social worker in Oklahoma. She's a believer. Um, and this is really, oh, I hate that it's off screen. This is a really great, um, a great resource. I think it's like a 12-week Bible study. It would be helpful to go through maybe with a friend so that y'all can hold each other accountable, but so y'all can also talk through things. Um, it could also be helpful to go through with a counselor. You get into some pretty deep stuff in this one, and so um, if you need it, reach out for help. The other book that would be helpful is called Attachments, and the subtitle is Why You Love, Feel, and Act the Way You Do. It's written by two Christian counselors, actually two Christian psychologists. Um, and is an excellent book. It has helped a lot of people with attachment. And then the other one, if you have children in your home, then you would want to read The Connected Child, which is by Dr. Karen Purvis. And it's filled with kind of the science behind attachment, as well as lots of practical strategies you can use in your home to help to build attachment, to build that connection with your kids. Some of it can be adapted for teenagers. All of this can be adapted for teenagers. We just have to be creative. 
So, any other questions? I wanted to explain that um, the children that have the early childhood trauma um, and you said that they probably at some point would need the deep emotional work and therapy. Of what age would you say that? That's a great question. That's a great question. That depends. So with kids, anytime they're processing hard things, so like grief and loss or trauma, anything hard, they're going to cycle through, they're going to cycle back around to that. So at, if they're three, they're going to process it as best they can as a three-year-old. When they reach another developmental stage, so when they reach like five or six kind of school age, they're going to reprocess that with the knowledge that they have now of the world. When they reach about nine years old, they'll process again. And so anytime you start to see maybe a bump in the road, it would be a good time to go. Knowing that even if you went at five and everything was resolved as well as it could be at five, you may be back with them in counseling at nine. You may be back at 12. Pretty much all of this, as soon as they hit a new level of cognitive understanding, really, they reprocess all that's happened. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. observation sometimes is that the adult thinks I've made it through this trauma and they they almost aren't willing to spend time on that trauma to think about that trauma to think that they should do anything differently so they're kind of in a sense it's an unhealthy thing that's happening with them how do you help them to to realize to be willing to look at the fact that we've learned so much about trauma but there really is a different way to do it. Or, like you said, there's a way to relearn or to how do you get them to a place that they, to acknowledge that this is real and this isn't just, you know, some little yeah. touchy-feely discussion. It really is a way that we can. That's a hard question. That's a hard question. There's a part of me, like my initial response, my initial thought is if they are dealing with a child who has trauma, they're living in survival mode. And so there's, you have to have felt safety, I mean, Nobody's 100% safe, right? But you have to have the sense of felt safety, not going through crisis mode for you to be able to relax enough to do trauma work. Mm -hmm. And so you can, you can bring awareness, but they may not be able to act on that until things at home calm down, until they're out of survival mode. So the, the foster parent is in a survival mode and they don't even realize it. Yes. And children from trauma they have big behaviors, they have big emotions, and they trigger big behaviors and big emotions in us, especially if we haven't done our, done our own work. They're gonna trigger it in us anyway. Even a securely attached person who's done all kinds of years of trauma therapy, you know, they're gonna trigger it in us. But if we haven't done our work, if we are not recognizing that this comes from our own past, they're really gonna trigger. That's a great question. How have you all been encouraged? I know many of you have been in survival mode. Being a safe place for them to be able to talk? Yes. 
you yeah. know, we currently have a family that or a couple who has just because most people say, Michael, we don't know how to help you. We just mm-hmm. feel bad for you. We don't know what to do, right? Uh, but we have one couple who's taken upon themselves. They provide meals for families, and uh, they do it once a week. We told them that was too much, mm-hmm. but once a month, they just bring by a meal, uh, and that takes a little bit of the pressure off in a practical way. Takes yes. a takes a little bit of pressure off of what we have to take care of for for that day, and that is mm-hmm. a you know, that's just a small practical need that they have, they can't help in any other way, but they've taken just a small step to help in a practical way. Mm-hmm. That's a great idea. I would think meeting practical needs first to maybe earn, earn the relationship to be able to share. They won't have time to read a book. <laughs> it might be a podcast instead. They do, yes, YouTube. So there's a bunch of YouTube, there's examples of how to expand the And short, like three to five minutes. Parents in survival mode could access them. Mm-hmm. Any other questions? I know I got Uh-huh. I need to let y'all go. Can I pray over you real quick? Okay. Father God, I am so very thankful that you have not lost our addresses or our phone numbers. You know exactly where we are and what we need. God, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. God, I thank you that you have been with us. You have watched over us and cared for us. God, I thank you that you are the ultimate healthy attachment. Father, I pray that you would give us courage as we look back in our histories, as we look back in our past to see to see the lies that we've started believing because of the pain that has happened. And Father, would we find you faithful to replace those lies with truth? Would you heal our minds? Would you renew our minds? Would you help us to be the leaders of our homes and the leaders in our ministries, Father, um, that point others to you? God, I thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.